and answering the question today, what is wrong with adultery? And so we're going to look at a few select passages, and we'll hop through uh, these three chapters. You know, I want to say at the outset that one of the things I really appreciate about the Scriptures is that the Bible really does not shy away from any of the tough topics in life. Whether it's marriage, sex, divorce, adultery, these are all very difficult things to address. Now, in today's very liberal culture in which we live in, a corrective teaching on these things, is, I think, is absolutely essential for us to have. You know, of all the cultures that have ever existed, this North American culture, well, even beyond North America as well, I don't think there's ever been a culture that has been so brazen and obsessed with romance and sex as our society has been. It's a very significant thing if you think about it. In fact, if you were to look at our culture and to measure it up in the history of the world, our culture's worldview on relationships is an absolute anomaly in the history of humankind. Basically, this idea of people finding true love, marrying your soulmate, or having some fairy tale sort of uh, romance and wedding is actually one of our culture's ideals, and it's considered to be a highest good. Yet, for the most part of human history, this is not the way that human beings have thought. For the better part of human history, most people had marriages that were arranged for them. People didn't marry actually for love, but they married for pragmatic, economic, social, or political advantage. In other words, marriage was primarily about others and not you. So the questions that people would ask in the vast majority of the world were not like, uh, how does this affect me? Do I really love this person? No, it was, would this marriage actually help my family to be in a better position if disaster struck? Or on the other side, if I married so-and-so, would it cost us half of our family inheritance? Or would this be beneficial to us as a whole in a group? It's very different. We are very me-centered in the way that we approach this, but for the most part, many cultures have been very others-centered in the way they thought about marriage and relationships. Now, given that marriage meant pooling your inheritance and also pooling your resources with another family that you're going to be allied with, with um, because of this marriage, it was a very, very serious business to be married. Now, today, it's quite different in that your parents' bank accounts and their real estate is not at risk in general if you choose to run off and go marry somebody else that you seem to like and to enjoy that's part of the reason why there's more freedom now, because the risk to your, to, to your parents' wealth is not as uh, strong. Now, historically, because people marriages were arranged and these things were a consideration, the reason that parents gave a lot of attention to this was because if they didn't, they could stand to lose a lot of their wealth and a lot of the family's good fortune and the things they had to provide for others due to some child who runs off and chooses to marry poorly or is robbed as a result of their marriage. Now, this is the way that people thought for the most part of history. But the rise of Romanticism in the 18th century really began to change things. Uh, love was no longer something that was to be pursued in the context of marriage, but rather romantic love became the foundation and the determiner of whether you should marry or not. And that's what people were looking for. Now, this is not to say that before the Romantic period in the 18th century that love and romance didn't exist. It has existed for a long time. All I'm saying is that there is a shift in that in society, people began to take romance and love, personal affection, as the basis you know, for whether or not a person should be married. Now, 
the truth of that is that as these things occurred and as people looked at it, uh, people knew about love and romance, but really it wasn't idealized in the same way that our culture idealizes it. And furthermore, uh, a lot of people actually looked at romance uh, with a lot of suspicion. So if you go back, for example, to the Greek philosopher Plato, Plato talks about different kinds of love, and he puts romantic love as one of the bottom rungs of the ladder, of which it's kind of there, and it's one of the ladder rungs that you need to climb to get to higher forms of love. So our culture puts romantic love at the very top. He would look at it and say, no, 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 that's at the very bottom. There are other forms of love, and closer to the top, you hear about things like platonic love. You know, that's love without this sort of uh, type of romantic passion and so on, an ideal form of love. Others throughout the centuries actually saw romantic love that affected young people as being some sort of sickness and a type of disease that caused them to make terrible, irrational decisions and that needed to be curbed while they were still young. So uh, it made them do really crazy things. And so really the advice was to avoid it. Probably one of the most famous plays in history that sort of shows us this is the play Romeo and Juliet by William Shakespeare. Now the vast majority of you who have grown up you know, here have probably studied this play or even know the story of Romeo and Juliet. But the truth of the matter is that Shakespeare's famous play is not actually some sort of tale about fierce, passionate, youthful love that conquers all things. Absolutely not. Shakespeare's play is actually a story of what happens when young, romantic, idealized love runs into the cold realities of family feuds and politics. And the short of the story is they both end up dead. That's why it's called a tragedy instead. And so that's why the prince at the end of the play actually says, for never was a story of more woe than this of Juliet and her Romeo. So yes, the play as a whole, I would say, indicts the families for causing the deaths of their children, saying you guys were foolish, and because of your feud, two of your kids end up dead. But the play also shows something else the worldview that romantic love actually doesn't conquer all things the way our culture thinks it does. In fact, romantic love might actually lead to both of you being dead because of choices that you end up making out of passion and not thinking through things carefully. See, in the ancient world, when you look at it, for the vast majority of human history, most people did not have the luxury of romance. Romance was actually reserved for the wealthy who had their mistresses because they had to marry for political or socioeconomical advantage. The average person had to fight for their existence by working or on a farm, providing for their daily needs. And when, let's say, Genghis Khan showed up with his army and wanted to sack your entire city and level all your villages, you better hope that the families that you had were strong and had many sons who could grip a sword and go out to defend you. Very important. Or perhaps when economic disasters struck and floods came to wipe out all of your crops, you had better hope that the family that you married into or the families that you were associated with by marriage were rich enough to have storehouses of grain so that while everybody else was starving, you at least would have food. It was very, very practical to think about it. So when your child, as a parent, became infatuated with someone else and said, oh, I really love that person, I'm going to go marry them, this was not just a, 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 an instance of somebody eloping, you know, being led sort of by their heart. This was actually a real threat to the entire community's survival. And it wasn't just an inconvenience. You could actually jeopardize the well-being of your family. And if this 
played itself out on a large scale in a nation could actually jeopardize the future of a nation as a whole. See, people understood as they fought for survival in those days that strong families, united couples, children, people working hard to stay together uh, was absolutely necessary to make sure that the whole group survived. So people understood that hard work on your land, hard work with your kids, hard work in your marriage was critical to establishing your wealth and your security, which is why it's not hard for many of the ancient people to understand that in marriage, love required work. Your farm required work. Your kids required work. Of course, your marriage required work. You didn't choose that person. It was arranged for you. So you had to work on it and make the best of it as you could. Now, today in our world, We live on the complete opposite end of the spectrum, and we totally don't get this at all. Our world is an easy world in one sense. In North America, for the most part, yes, our life has stresses. Yes, you have final exams, which are awful and so on. But really, your life is not that bad, okay? Life is actually quite easy and quite good here. We have long life expectancies, good medical care. And unfortunately, what this has done to us, it has programmed us, Christians, I think, included, to think that everything in life should be easy, whether that's the Christian walk or even love when it comes to relationships. When relationships don't work out, like marriage, we think, well, what's wrong with it? Maybe I married the wrong person. Like, no, maybe you actually need to work at it. The same way you need to work at many other things in life. Why do you have that assumption? See, romanticism, popularized by Hollywood and exported all around the world, has sold our society an entire set of lies. And these lies include functional beliefs, such as, for example, you know that you've met the one because you're absolutely uncontrollably attracted to them and you just get each other intuitively. I just know. I just know that's the person I'm supposed to marry. Now, the second thing I would say that Hollywood also sells is you don't need an education in love or to work at it. It will just happen, you know? You just know, like Aladdin and Jasmine. Third thing, something is right because it feels right, and when it no longer feels right, don't go against nature. Let it die. So people often do this in relationships. It's kind of like that song, like let it go, except it's let it die, let it die. If a relationship doesn't work for you, you say, obviously the relationship is problematic. I need to get a new person. That's why we have serial strings of people who are uh, engaged in serial marriages, one after another, hoping that I'll find the right person really to make things work for me. If it doesn't work, don't push hard for it. Don't go against nature. Let that relationship die. Fourth thing, Our culture teaches us, exported through our movies as well, is that sex is a personal human right, and it doesn't have to be between only married people. It's about whether you love each other and not your status. Now, I could go on and on and on about all the different ideas that our culture tries to teach us here, but the truth of this is that none of these ideas are biblical ideas. In fact, they go right against the teaching of the Bible. And in history, when you think about this romantic culture, this this view that romance is the highest sort of ideal, this even in human history is a relatively new cultural phenomenon. So not only is the Bible, I think, against it, but I would say the rest of human history is against this sort of view of marriage and relationships. But the reason I bring this up, both worldviews, is because it's very important to understand where these worldviews come from. The romantic worldview that is currently vogue in our culture and the pragmatic worldview when it comes to love marriage and relationships and sex. Both of these have problems. Both of them do not fit the biblical mold. And the question is, if we understand both is, is 
as we read the Proverbs, if we understand these things well, we will see how the Bible differs from these things and how the Bible offers a correction to both of these worldviews, okay? So what I'd like to do with us is I'd like to start moving through Proverbs chapter 5 to 7. We'll read some sections. I'll explain a bit. I'll read some more sections, and I'll explain a bit. And hopefully this will teach us, you know, what we should learn about love, relationships, sex, and marriage. Let's begin here with the reading of Proverbs chapter 5, verses 1 to 6, to frame this whole sort of thing. You can follow along on your screen here. Proverbs chapter 5, verses 1 to 6. My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding, that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life, and her ways wander, and she does not know it. Now, the way that this section starts off is very similar to other sections that proffers, that it starts off with the address, my son. And this is repeated over and over again, my son, my son, my son. Now, in the context here, of course, the father is teaching his son about what is right and wrong with regards to human sexuality. But I don't want us to think that this is wisdom for men only or that this is a sermon directed only to men. This is actually advice for both women and for men. Like if you look at the opening of the book of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 1, verse 8, it states this, Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching. What this tells us is at the beginning of Proverbs, guess who's included? Mom is included here as well. It's father teaching as well, and mom is also teaching. In other words, this law and the wisdom of God is to be taught by both parents, not just one or the other. Now, for this to be true, she must have learned biblical wisdom as well. And if you look at the Old Testament, for example, in Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 12, we see that both men and women were to be instructed in the law of God. The text actually says this, Assemble the people, men, women, and little ones, and the sojourner within your towns, that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God, and be careful to do all the words of this law. See, the point is this, is that godly wisdom is to be passed on by both men and women to their children, in the context, of course, of people who love and care for these little children, so they may know how to live well before the Lord. Now, there's a number of things, okay, that this passage is going to teach us from mom and dad's godly wisdom that is timeless and eternal and true for all cultures and for all times. There's a number of things that we're going to learn here about the problem of forbidden sex. And as I thought about how to teach this today, I decided I would write my own sort of catchy proverbs instead to give you a feel for what the ancient proverbs are trying to teach us with their short, punchy little lines, okay? So these Lines are not from the Bible, okay? I'm sure you'll figure them out. But I hope they accurately reflect in 21st century language what the text is trying to communicate to us graphically. All right, number one. Here, I'll put this on on for you. Forbidden sex is like ordering a Starbucks iced tea made from pure toilet water. It's refreshing chills until E. coli kills. Now, let me explain this a bit. At home, I am the toilet cleaner. Uh, It's a job I've had for 10 years in our marriage. I've always uh, been, I don't know, good at cleaning toilets. I wouldn't say I like cleaning toilets, but it's always fallen to me. Even when I had roommates and so on, it was just my thing to always clean the bathrooms. 
I put on my gloves and I scrub everything until it's gleaming white. I'm not satisfied until there's not a speck of dirt left on the toilet. In fact, by the time I'm done with it, it actually looks so clean that you might actually think, if you didn't know what it was, that you could probably eat off of it. But my point is this, even in the cleanliness of my bathroom scrubbing sort of regimen, don't let the cleanliness of the toilet fool you. Uh, it's interesting. I read this excerpt actually from medical uh, that was in an article that was approved by a medical doctor. In case you're wondering about how clean a toilet actually is and what toilet water will do to you, the article said this: Toilet water can be extremely harmful to your health and should only be consumed in the case of an extreme emergency. Now, I laughed when I read that because I'm like, you actually don't need a doctor to tell you this. I discovered very early on that my young children, you know. Knew very well that toilet water was not clean, and I never had to teach them that. Just from their observations of the natural world. Now, as clean as it might look, we all understand that a toilet contains bacteria, harmful things like E. coli, for example, that if they get inside of you and if they're consumed, can actually kill you. And this is the point I think the father is trying to make about forbidden sex as he talks. You just look at the language that he uses in these first six verses, right? He says, "Lips that drip honey, speech smoother than oil, like a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to Sheol or down to the path of death." Basically, what he's saying is, "Look, not all sweet things are good for you." You know, there's actually a famous type of honey that's called mad honey, and it's found basically somewhere in like the mountains of Nepal,、uh, and it's made from these bees that、uh, that go to rhododendron flowers and they collect the pollen and they make this honey. And literally, the honey,、uh, when you eat it, gives you sort of this alcoholic-like type kick. And the reason it gives you that kick is not because it contains alcohol, but it contains a poison called grayanotoxin. Now, in small amounts, it gives you a little buzz, you know, and people really enjoy the flavor of this honey. But the thing is, in large amounts, it can actually kill you. In fact, there's a legendary story that's told about the Persian king named Mithradates who littered the road actually with huge amounts of this mad honey honeycombs. And then a Roman army came through with his soldiers, and they ate it. And as they were all sort of like dying and unable to think properly, his army moved in and basically slaughtered them. That's how he beat the Roman army. Now it's really interesting when you think about it, because you realize that even in our world, just because something appears to be sweet doesn't mean that it's right or that it won't actually kill you in the end of the day. In fact, Proverbs fourteen verse twelve speaks specifically to something like this when it says this: "There is a way that seems right to a man." But in the end, it's the way to death. In other words, what he's saying here, the fathers, forbidden sex, adultery, and stuff may seem sweet, but at the end of the day, it's going to slit your throat and it will kill you in the end. And here's the deal, son: if you have eyes that are trained only to think the way that the world has taught you to think, you will only see the honey. Whereas the eyes that have been trained to see with godly wisdom won't just see the honey, but they will actually see. See soul-killing, honey-flavored toilet water instead—something that you would never drink in life. So the question is, why would you drink it spiritually if you actually know that's what it is? In other words, he's saying forbidden sex is deceptively dangerous, and it's with the eyes of faith and the eyes that are informed by the wisdom of God that you know that's actually true. See, even Starbucks' best-tasting drink will kill you if your Starbucks barista makes their drinks from toilet water. Number two,、yeah. forbidden sex is like posting a selfie of your bank account number and password. The likes are really fun until your balance reads none. Now, 
it's a strange phenomenon in our world today that young people have a habit of literally posting everything that they do online. Uh, adults as well now do this as well. I mean, I'm not just young people as well. It's a strange thing to observe. It's almost like we live online. One of the things I've seen that people do is they often post things like, you know, on my way to Hawaii, you know, sunshine and great weather, hashtag something, something, and then they have a picture of their boarding pass. Now, I don't know if you know, but that the boarding pass is one of the most dangerous things that you can actually post online in a selfie picture. The reason why is that if you can read the barcode on it, you can actually get access to a person's frequent flyer number uh, and maybe log into their online portal with their reference number as well, get the last four digits of their credit card number, you get their full name, you can take their passport information and so on. Probably never thought about that when you were posting a picture of your vacation. Now, the issue here is that you are at risk of getting your identity stolen as a result of posting something like that. And if you knew that, you probably would think twice about posting that sort of information. Now, most of us don't understand that selfies of sensitive information like that pose a potential risk. But most of us are wise enough to know that what you should not do is take a picture of your banking number and then take a picture of your password and post it and invite people to check how much money you have in your bank account. I guarantee you that if you do that, you're going to have nothing in that bank account at the end of the day. And if you, that continues to be your password, you will have nothing for the rest of your life because every paycheck that you deposit will end up being taken by somebody else who has your banking information and will have no problem emptying out your account every single month you know, or every two weeks to make sure that your money becomes theirs. Now, my point is this. Um, you will be absolutely ruined if that happens to you. And that's the point that the father is trying to make here about forbidden sex. He's saying it's going to ruin you practically as well, completely, financially, and in your life. Look at what Proverbs 5, verses 8 to 10 says. Keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless, lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. Now, in cultures like Solomon, you know, adultery carried grave socioeconomic uh, consequences. See, not only could you lose your standing and your job or your position of honor or so on, but it seems actually like a jealous husband in this case could demand a huge amount of compensation from a potential adulterer. Now, adultery in most places in our world is not a criminal offense today, but it doesn't mean it won't lead you to economic ruin. So for example, if you have a very messy divorce, it could actually, as a result of adultery, this can actually lead to you having things like alimony payments, the loss of half your assets, and support payments for children. I actually read a story this week about one Texan man whose adultery cost him $9 million compensation to the woman's husband whose business suffered as a result of his emotional distress and his inability basically to run his company. That's a $9 million mistake. Now, in addition to the financial ruin, of course, adultery brings on horrid things like the emotional devastation of separation, stress, regret, distrust, and so on. In fact, it's so personal as well, and it strikes at the core of who we are, that in ancient Rome, there was actually a law that said that adultery being such a serious crime uh, allowed the husband actually to kill the man who had committed adultery with his spouse. See, the stakes are so high, actually, when it comes to things like adultery. Look how the Proverbs actually explain this in Proverbs chapter 6, verses 27 to 35, about the foolishness of, going, of committing adultery. The text says, Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? 
So is he who comes into his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his appetite when he is hungry. But if he is caught, he will pay sevenfold. He will give all the goods of his house. He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. He will get wounds and dishonor, and his disgrace will not be wiped away. For jealousy makes a man furious, and he will not spare when he takes revenge. He will accept no compensation. He will refuse, though you multiply gifts. You see how the logic of this text works here. Basically, it says, do you think that you can open up your barbecue, scoop out the coals, and say, I'm going to carry them in my shirt and walk across the lawn? No, you would never do that because it would burn you horribly. So the question is, why would you do that? He says, with uh, sexual immorality that goes outside of God's covenant bounds. See, don't think that you can do this and not get burned by it. In fact, Lord Chief Justice of England, John Holt in 1707, said about adultery that an individual or man cannot receive a higher provocation. See, stealing is bad, but even a thief can be forgiven, especially if they pay it back. What do you do with things like adultery? How do you compensate that? In fact, you can actually never restore to a couple the exclusive intimacy that belongs to them alone once that has been violated. See, it's so painful because it strikes the very core of our being. The fact that we give ourselves away to someone else in marriage completely and wholly, and when someone else enters into that union and wrecks that, it feels like our whole world is torn out. All the trust and everything that we have built is smashed to pieces. I always think that marriages and relationships are like towers of trust that you build one layer at a time, year after year. Something like adultery or an affair or whatever basically knocks out the entire foundation and it feels like all you have left is ruins. And it is hard work to not only clean out the rubble, but to rebuild it. Far easier to just be building. Way harder to have to do demolition work, renovation work, and then to rebuild. Recovering from that is very, very difficult. Although it is possible, I would say, by the grace of God. Now, this, the, 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 the Proverbs teaching here is saying that, look at this. Basically, forbidden sex won't only kill you, okay, but also it will completely wreck your life, and you'll feel as if you want to be dead. It will ruin you financially, it will take away your honor, and it will remove you from society, basically. There's no recovering from it. So in short, marital intimacy really is like banking information. It should only be shared with your spouse unless you want to ruin yourself. Some things need to stay only between couples. Number three here. Forbidden sex in Vegas may stay in Vegas, but you're always live streaming before God. I think this is what the psalmist, uh, the, what the writer of Proverbs is trying to teach us here. You know, that famous saying, right? Whatever happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. And the idea is you can do whatever you want there and it doesn't affect the way that you live the rest of your life. But here's the deal is though you may shut off your webcam, though you may be far away from eyes, are you far away from the eyes of God? Look at Proverbs chapter 7, verses 16 to 20 says here, look at how the adulteress speaks. She says, I have spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egypt. I perfume my bed with myrrh, aloes, cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. For my husband is not home. He has gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him. At a full moon, he will come home. Look at her technique. She appeals to luxury, a long night of pleasure, a risk-free encounter, she says. Now, sometimes people get away with these sort of things, but not all do. Even in our world, many people do get busted and caught. I read, for example, the story of an Israeli man who was on a business trip, and he decided to summon a call girl. 
And to his horror, the girl that showed up at his hotel room was his own daughter. Now the man, as a result of that, suffered a mild heart attack at the site. And as a result of his hospitalization, his wife found out why he was in the hospital. Basically, she helped her daughter get a new job, and then she divorced her husband. See, nobody gets into adultery thinking that they're going to get caught. Nobody gets involved in immorality thinking that I'm going to be revealed. But the point is, many do. But even if you don't, what happens in Vegas does not stay in Vegas in the eyes of God, who always sees what you're doing, who always has a direct access and a camera view over your life. Look at what Proverbs 5, 15 to 21 says. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. You see that, what he's saying here? He's saying, you're always before the Lord. You are always live streaming whether or not you have a smartphone or not. You don't live in a lawless universe, but you live in a universe that is moral and has laws and has a supreme God who sees everything in it, and he has standards for how human beings are to be living. You know what's really interesting about this passage is the way that it speaks about uh, water here. See, in those days in the Middle East, water was very scarce, right? You had to get it either from a fresh water source like a river, or you needed to have a well. And if you didn't have something like that, you couldn't just turn on the plumbing and get water. Water was very difficult to come by. So here, marital intimacy is actually presented in incredibly beautiful terms, not in sort of the raunchy, physical-only terms that our culture uses to describe physical union, nor with the disdain that many pragmatic cultures have looking at sex as something that is dirty, okay? So it's not uh, something that is to be divine, nor is it to be something that is dirty. But here, actually, the Bible says this is the way that marriage, relationships, and intimacy are to be viewed. You should view it as life-giving water to your soul, a thirst-quenching, life-giving gift that happens before the Lord, and it's actually approved by Him in the context of marriage. Now, I know that in our culture, an idea like this is very unpopular because of how liberal that we are. Many people might ask the question and say, I don't understand. Why does God care about what I do in my private life? It's my life to live. Why does your God care about that? Now, a few decades ago, I think, was, I think Canadians think this in particular, a few decades ago, the father of our current prime minister, Pierre Trudeau, when he was was prime minister, made a very famous statement to the media and said, there's no place for the state in the bedrooms of the nation. And so, of course, the natural question that Canadians will ask, if the government doesn't care what happens that goes on behind closed doors, why does God care? Why should that matter? You know, Augustine, who is the great Christian teacher, asked a very similar question about God's care. He said, what am I to you, God, that you command me to love you and that if I fail to love you, you are angry with me and you threaten me with vast miseries. That's a very good question, actually, especially when it comes to human marriage, love, and relationships. Why does God care so much about what goes on in private? 
And the answer to that is because the human race is his offspring. Literally in him, we live and move and have our very being. In him, all of us were born through our forefather, Adam, who was crafted in the very image of God. And because we are his offspring, we bear the divine image. There is one race, and that is the entire human race. Now, you and I understand this in one sense, why God should care. Most of us might not care so much about how a neighbor's kid affects us, but we do care about how our own children grow up and how they turn out. And in the same way, if we really are the children of God, if we are made in his image, don't you think that God will care about how we live and how our lives turn out at the end of the day? See, an evolutionary worldview sees marriage, relationships, and sex as nothing more than a chemical evolutionary adaptation that allowed our species, the Homo sapiens, to grow and dominate the planet. Because we were willing, due to a chemical imbalance, to do ridiculous, irrational things like sacrificing ourselves for people that we love and so benefiting the whole species. And that's the reason that we grew to be prominent. Really, it was an adaptation that allowed us to flourish. Yet the Bible tells us it's not just an accident, a mix of chemicals in your brain that cause you to do irrational things that ultimately preserve life and allow the species to propagate. The Bible tells us that sex and marriage are actually designed by God. And ultimately, what they're meant to do, as we see now, is to portray the work and person of Jesus Christ as it relates to his beautiful bride, the church. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 to 32, is a famous passage which says this. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself, in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh." This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. See, the gospel of Jesus Christ shows us ultimately what human marriage and sexuality is truly about. It's one man and one woman being faithful to each other in the covenant bonds of marriage and self-sacrificially loving one another that God uses to point the world to the greater marriage of Jesus Christ and his beautiful bride, the church. The way that husbands and wives are to live with one another in Christian, one, Christian love is to reflect on the greatness of God as he loves his church. See, following the Bible's wisdom with regards to sex and relationships that is, having intimacy only within the bonds of covenant marriage, actually gives us a redeemed window into the sinless world of the Garden of Eden long before Adam and Eve were tempted by the servant. A time in which the first man and the woman, as the Bible says, were naked and unashamed and had perfect intimacy with God and with each other. So in marriage, what happens is that you actually have a front row seat to all of your spouse's imperfections, their disappointments, their inadequacies, 
whether that's physical on their body or emotional or in the way that they are spiritually. You see everything. You can't hide that from somebody that you're married to. And the joy in having naked intimacy is that you are declaring to that person that you are close with and intimate with is that I see you as you are with all of your warts and if all your imperfections and you don't need to be afraid of me because I fully accept you, all of you, the way that you are and I love you in spite of your imperfections. The physical act and the vulnerability that comes as a result of that is a window, almost a metaphorical portrayal of the deeper spiritual connection and vulnerability that exists there to say, all of you, all of you is together with me. I am one with you. There is no difference here. I think it's what happened in the Garden of Eden. And when the first man and the woman sinned, it says they realized they were naked and they became ashamed. They could no longer look at each other and say, can I trust you? How can you trust an individual who has just violated uh, the trust with God and they no longer felt safe? In marriage, as we function as Christians, we begin to see a restoration of that as we play out uh, the love of Jesus Christ in our marriage. A little picture of Eden. And this is what I think is so wrong with only having physical sex without actually giving of the entirety of your life to another person. See, to give only the physical while withholding your heart actually is wrong because it separates who we are from what we do. See, When we do that, to give intimacy with no sense of commitment, that's actually horrifying because it's actually, in the end of the day, using someone else rather than giving wholly to someone else. It's a gross misunderstanding of what love and relationships is to be. See, when you're with someone else, only because of how they make you feel, what you're exhibiting is actually not love, but you're actually exhibiting a desire to be loved. It's actually very, very different. You're using that person to bolster your sense of self. I'm finally okay because this person loves me. When they're around me, I feel good. And when it doesn't work out and then you no longer feel good and you no longer feel like a prince or a princess to them, you ditch them and you go and you find someone else. What is that? Actually, it shows what you functionally believe about love. You're not in love with the person. You're in love with the idea of being loved by someone else. And this is the great danger in our romanticized culture. Many people today are in love with the idea of being in love. The singer Joni Mitchell, who is not a Christian, actually said it very well about sex and relationships. She wrote this, If you want endless repetition, see a lot of different people. If you want infinite variety, stay with one. What happens when you date is you run all your best moves and you tell all your best stories, and in a way, that routine is a method for falling in love with yourself over and over. You can't do this with a long-time mate because he knows all that old material. With a long relationship, things die, then are rekindled, and that shared process of rebirth deepens the love. It's hard work, though, and a lot of people run at the first sign of trouble. But if you get through it, If you get closer and you learn a way of loving that's different from the neurotic, if you can get through it, you get closer and you learn a way of loving that's different from the neurotic love enshrined in movies. She's not a Christian. And I think she's absolutely nailed it. The problem with our culture. Moving from one person to another is nothing more than telling your own stories over and over again, thinking about yourself and falling in love with yourself. 
But commitment to one person, through thick and through thin, through good times and through bad times, that is growing in love. See, if you're thinking about getting married primarily because somebody makes you feel good, it feels great, and you can't live without them, I'll just say to you, just forget about it. You're not ready, actually, for marriage. You will make a mockery of what God intended for marriage to be. But if you're interested in being married as a Christian because you want to grow in your love with God, grow in your sanctification, you want to be together with someone else so that the two of you might be better together than as one to represent Jesus Christ and his church in the way that you're going to suffer, to forgive, and to die to yourself, and to pour yourself out to children, a spouse, and to others around you, then I would say, yes, go ahead and do it. Go out and be a blessing to the world and show them how Jesus Christ loves his church in the way that you live your marriage. And in your marriage, the world will be treated to a picture of the invisible God and his love for his church. See, sex and marriage is not ultimately about us. It's ultimately about God. You know, church, as we wrap this up, you know, let's go back. Let me ask my you know, previous questions. Just think about it. Would you drink water, drink a beverage from a restaurant that mixes its drinks from toilet water? Would you take a selfie of your banking information? No, you would not. The devastation practically that would happen to you is just absolutely awful. And in the same way, there are major practical ramifications to practicing forbidden sex or anything that goes outside of God's rules. But also, more importantly, as we would say, would you do what you're currently doing in your life now if you knew that somebody with the phone was live streaming you to the world? Would you live that way? Would you currently do the things that you are doing right now, 24-7, if somebody had a camera on you? And the question is, God always does, and he always sees. But the question is, do we fear him? Do we think that he observes and watches? See, the point is, all of this, what the writer of Proverbs is teaching here is he's saying, forbidden sex doesn't just ruin your life practically but it ruins you completely spiritually as well. It's total, just like any sin does. And the Bible actually redeems us from our culture, which says that sex is divine, and it redeems us also from the other culture, which says sex is dirty, and it says basically that it's actually holy as long as within the bounds that God has established. It's a fire that is meant to be kept in the fireplace, and if you put fire outside of the fireplace, you risk burning the whole house down, so don't do it. See, the Bible teaches us the joy of marital intimacy and closeness, talking about it like being water, being refreshing to our souls as well. It's something that we should enjoy. And as we, as Christian husbands and wives, enjoy our spouses, enjoy the intimacy that we have with them, enjoy them for who they are and who God has made them to be, we're actually glorifying God when we drink deeply from this gift that God has given us. It's a beautiful thing. Now, I know that in this church and many other people here, a number of you are single today, either because you've never been married before, or perhaps you are divorced, or perhaps you have a spouse that's passed away, or because of your own sin, your spouse has been driven away, or because of your spouse's sin, uh, they have driven themselves away from you. I can't speak to all those particular circumstances. But at the same time, though I don't know what your future will look like, whether you'll marry again before you see Jesus, or whether you'll live another year I can say this. In our culture, I know that our culture somewhat pities you, saying that you have lost the culture's highest ideal, and that is to find true love and to be happy for the rest of your life. 
The truth of what the Bible has to say here is that God does not pity you in that way. God does not look down on you. God does not view you as less than complete because you do not have what our culture idolizes. Jesus himself said that some are born eunuchs, you know, and some become eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom, and some basically choose that. In other words, what he's saying is that if God has given you singleness as a gift in your current life circumstances, the way that you are right now, then the contentment and the joy that you have to fight for in Jesus Christ to have maybe every single day when that thirst comes before you is actually a declaration to the world when you have it that your joy doesn't lie in relationships and the God of this culture, but your joy ultimately lies in the person of Jesus Christ. Though you are single and you do not have what our culture idolizes, you have everything because you have Jesus Christ. And the question that the world needs to answer when they look at you is, is Jesus Christ actually much more satisfying than even what our highest ideal and good is in our culture? And when they see you striving for that joy and exhibiting it, they are treated to a view of a world that goes beyond this world. It's so important. See, you singles actually preach better than all married people do in here, that Christ is more than enough and better than any earthly relationship. Though it is your cross to bear, it is also your privilege to bear at the same time. And your Lord and your Master will not only sustain you by His grace, but He will reward you for your faithfulness as well. The question for you is, do you believe that, brothers and sisters? Can you believe that having Jesus is more than enough and having Him is better than having any amount of children, a spouse, or all the money in the world? Does the infinite love of Jesus Christ that He's shown to you on the cross so warm your heart that you would say, it's a privilege for me to live for my master in this way. You know, for some of you here, I know listening online, whatever, perhaps you're not a Christian actually here today. And you finally figured out that your life and your relationships have all been a mess and your sex life never has satisfied you. And the reason why is because intimacy with another person was never meant to be an ends. But it was always meant to be a pointer ultimately towards God. And he is ultimately what you need in your life. And so if you're listening to this today and you're logging in online, I would say to you, would you actually confess of the mess that you made of your life and your sin? Stop trying in all these relationships to promote yourself and to fall in love with yourself over and over again and to fall in love with Jesus Christ who died on the cross for your sins and has given you the hope of an eternal life in a relationship with him. Now that's glorious. That's something you should strive for. Would you not do that? Jesus is better than any relationship that you could possibly have in this world. Would you not try to find your true worth and your value in him? You know, for those of you who are married here and you're struggling in your marriage, I would urge you not to look for other sources to drink from. The Bible is very clear here that it will kill you not only physically, ruin you financially and destroy your honor, but it will also kill you spiritually as well. There is nothing good about it whatsoever. Don't think that the honey there which looks sweet is not laced with arsenic or poison. Don't look for it elsewhere. Instead, submit your marriage and your sexuality to God and ask Him to do the hard work of renovating, demolishing, and rebuilding rather than chasing a mirage that does not exist. Contra to our culture's teaching, sex is not supreme. Only Christ is supreme. And in that, we ultimately find our hope, our joy, and our eternal hope.
Would you stand with me as we pray and close? Father in heaven, it's such a wonderful thing, God, to read your word together today. To find such truth for our lives, oh God, and to find answers, oh God, to the worldview of our culture that we have a sense is broken, but we don't have the ability to pinpoint what's wrong with it until we come to your word and we put on the lenses of your word and we see with crystal clear clarity truth for life. God, I pray, Father, that you would help us, God, in the way that we have relationships, the way that we marry, the way that we live, oh God, to honor you and to make much of Jesus Christ and to know that ultimately our marriages and the way that we are to relate to one another are to be a reflection of you. So, Father, I pray, oh God, would you help us to demonstrate Jesus Christ in all that we do? Would you help us to believe and to find satisfaction in him and to know that sex is not supreme? Christ is supreme and ultimately satisfying. He is the living water ultimately that we need. And to live according to his commandments is true life and joy and peace. So, Father, we thank you for this. Lord, I pray as we continue in worship right now, as we sing, as we prepare ourselves afterwards to take communion together, may we reflect well on the precious blood of Jesus Christ that was spilled for us so that we, O oh God, might be free. I pray this, Father, in Jesus' name.